Today we're in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read for us verses 7 through 13. We'll be considering that first section. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. There was once a small country led by a dictator who ruled for so many years that its citizens didn't know any other way to live. The dictator told them their lives were as good as they could reasonably expect, and when it became clear that wasn't true, he blamed it on outsiders or on the citizens themselves. His propaganda constantly reinforced the idea that the country was free, and since its citizens never had known real freedom, they believed it. But occasionally word of a different and better way of life, a way of freedom, reached across the border. Most citizens ignored those rumors because they thought they were free. But first one person and then another dared to to listen and to believe the message and, and begin to seek freedom. Eventually there was enough momentum for that new way of life that the dictator was deposed and a new government was installed. But there were still citizens who were loyal to the old ruler and wanted him returned to power. And they worked to promote his cause at every opportunity. They insisted that life had been better under the dictator. It had been easier. It had been more fulfilling. They urged their fellow citizens to go back, to submit again to the dictator's rule. And forget this freedom nonsense. It was the only sensible thing to do. The old life, they said, was better. The small country I've just described is really you. Your body is its borders. Your mind, heart, soul, and physical powers, its citizens. And sin is the dictator. When, maybe in some cases, if you came to faith in Christ and confessed him Lord, you came under new management, new rule, and the power of sin over you was broken. As Paul put it back in chapter 6, we saw last week, for sin will not lord it over you. That's a literal translation. The dictator has been removed from office. But here's the thing. The dictator's agents are still operating in the country. Sin supporters are still active inside you in your mind, heart, body, soul, and possibly very active. Paul has a term for the opposition within you that we're going to see a lot next week. This power that resists the rule of Jesus and instead promotes a return to the former way of life. He he uses the Greek word sarks to describe it, which various translations and paraphrases render as flesh, sinful nature, 
physical desires, lower nature, self-indulgence. You get the idea. It's about this internal adversary that Paul wrote the Galatian Christians. You, my brothers, are called to be free, only don't use your freedom to indulge the sarks. Like that small country, your former dictator, Sin, has been deposed and has no official power at all over you. Yet, like that small country, the former dictator still has agents embedded on the inside, working to bring you back under its rule. How do you rule or how do you root out those agents? That's what we're going to learn in chapters 7 and especially chapter 8. Paul opens chapter 7 by directly addressing ethnic Jews in the Roman church. Now, he hasn't done that. He did it a lot in the early part of the book. In fact, in chapter 2, he did it about 30 times. But he hasn't done that since. Now, let me remind you of what was going on in the church when Paul wrote this letter. You have to keep this in mind throughout the study of Romans. The emperor Claudius had previously expelled all ethnic Jews from the city, from Rome. And they were banished for at least a few, but as many as a dozen years from the city. That meant that the Jewish followers of Jesus were forced to leave the church that they founded and loved and led. And the Jewish, or the Gentile Christians who remained were forced to step up and take leadership in the church. They did so, the church continued to grow, and over the years it took on a more Gentile tone. About the time this new way of doing things had become the established way of doing things, that's what happens in churches, right? Claudius died, and the new emperor, Nero, remanded his order and allowed Jews to return to Rome. When Jewish Christians, like Paul's good friends, Priscilla and Aquila, returned home, to their beloved church, they found that things had changed. The new Gentile atmosphere of the church didn't feel quite right to them. They were especially uneasy about the lack of emphasis on the Torah, the Jewish law. Paul addressed some of those concerns back in chapters 2 through 4, but he left the subject entirely in chapter 5 and only returned to it very briefly in chapter 6. But what he said in chapter 6 was really enough to worry Jewish Christians. In verse 14, he wrote, and then repeated the key phrase again in verse 15, for sin shall not be your master, sin will not lord it over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. A Jewish Christian reader would have been nodding his head up to that moment. Sin could no longer lord it over them. Its authority in their lives had been broken. The dictator had been deposed. There had been regime change from tyranny to grace. Hallelujah. And then the next line. A Jewish Christian reader would have stopped dead in his tracks and reread that sentence, certain that he'd misread it the first time. But no, that is what it said. You are not under law. How could Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee for crying out loud, write such a thing? He was raised to believe that the only hope of ever escaping the power of sin was by obeying the Jewish law. He was taught that the law was the buffer between him and sin. So for Paul to say, you're not under law, sounded like heresy. His Jewish readers, they were already uncomfortable with the role of Torah or the lack thereof 
in the church that they had founded. And now Paul is telling people that they're not under law. It was disturbing. More than that, it was shocking. How could he say such a thing? Now, you have to know that when Paul wrote that line, chapter 6, verse 14, repeated in verse 15, he knew the kind of response it would evoke because it was exactly how he would have once responded. So now in chapter 17, he comes back to the issue. And he tells the Roman Christians, especially the ethnic Jewish ones, that with the victory of Jesus, the role of the law has changed. In explaining that, he's going to uncover the depths of the struggles that even religious people, even sincere believers, even Paul himself, have with sin and why they have it. Those forces on the inside. At the end of the chapter, he's going to open a door and point us in the direction of relief. It's found in this faith connection to Jesus and the newness of life that goes with it. There's a new way to live. In the first 13 verses of chapter 7, Paul dispels the illusion that newness of life will ever result from obedience to religious law. While the law is holy and righteous and good, that's verse 12, it was never designed to keep away sin. So to try and use it that way is like trying to use a hammer to drive a screw or a beach ball to play soccer. You know, it might look possible for a while, but no one's going to be happy with the result. It might look like you can use the law to overcome sin, but you're not going to be happy with the result. The law, Paul insists, was not given to inhibit sin, but to expose it. Like an x-ray doesn't cure pneumonia, but reveals it. It was in chapter 5 that he first introduced this idea. The law turns invisible sin into verifiable trespasses. It makes sin show up so that people can take steps to deal with it. Here in chapter 7, he makes the same argument in a different way. He says, indeed, this is verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The law doesn't reduce sin. It's not meant to. It magnifies it. Does that mean the law is defective or is bad? Well, is an x-ray defective because it reveals a disease? No. Paul asked the question in verse 13 in a different way. Did that which is good then become death to me? Is the religious law bad? And he answers this way. By no means. You remember my paraphrase of that. Are you nuts? But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, which is incredibly important, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The point Paul is trying to make it's reassuring to his Jewish readers on one level, but it's very challenging on another, is that there is a problem, but it's not with the law. Remember, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is with the people using the law. He spells this out in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Let me illustrate. 
Let's say my wife is making chicken paprikash, one of my favorite dishes that she makes. And she has a couple chicken breasts stewing on the stove, but she has to go off to work, and she asked me to take them out at a certain time and let them cool. So I take the large meat fork, and I stab one of the chicken breasts, and I begin to raise it out of the pot, but the meat's so tender that it falls right off the fork. So I try again, and the same thing happens. I try one more time with the same result. I've got a defective fork. Right? That's the only answer. Of course not. There's nothing wrong with the fork. It's just not the right tool for the job. In the same way, Paul insists, there's nothing wrong with the law, but it's the wrong tool for this job, the job of freeing people from the power of sin. The law is one of God's great gifts to the world, but it is a diagnostic tool, not a therapeutic one. It can show us where we are, but it can't get us to where we need to go. It can't release people from sin. When my car's not running well, I take it to my mechanic. And you know what the first thing he always does is puts it on a scanner. You know, I'm trying to tell him what's wrong, and I think partly that goes in one ear and out the other, because he thinks, yeah, yeah, okay, let me put it on the scanner. The scanner is this amazing tool of enormous value that has revolutionized car repair, but it can't fix your car, no matter how many times you use it. So with the law, it cannot fix your sin problem, no matter how often you turn to it. It can reveal the problem, and that's hugely important, but different tools will be needed to fix it. In Paul's day, And for more than a century, probably more like two or three centuries before Paul, it was common for Jewish people to blame their nation's problems, and they had many, on a failure to keep the law of Moses. The the exile at 587 B.C., the defeat at the hands of enemy nations, Israel's subjugation to the Babylonians, and then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, were all blamed on the failure to keep the law. Why is all this happening to us, people asked. And the answer pious people gave was, because our sinful, irreligious countrymen don't keep the law. This mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. That's how some prominent first century Jews put it. Many Jews, and the Pharisees are the perfect example, believe that God would only come to their rescue, would only send the Messiah, when people started fulfilling the law. And since they were already fulfilling the law in their own estimation, they blamed other people for their problems. They became angry and judgmental. We're in this situation because of you, this know-nothing mob that won't keep the law. But Paul says just the opposite. The law can only be fulfilled after God has come to our rescue, which he's already done by sending Messiah Jesus. Before the coming of Jesus into the world and into our lives, we did not have what we needed to fulfill the law's righteous requirements. Many people didn't even try. And those of us who did, 
We kept trying and failing. We'd tell ourselves, don't do it, don't do it, and then we'd do it. Or we'd tell ourselves, I need to do this, but we'd never manage to do so. We were trying, in other words, to use the moral and religious law to make us holy, but that's like trying to use an x-ray to cure pneumonia. The religious law isn't the right tool for the job. We're like soldiers fighting a war with all kinds of helpful instruments like infrared cameras and radar and GPS, but without weapons. And we were losing. A lot of people have found themselves in exactly this place. I'm talking about people who fill churches every Sunday. They turn to religion because they feel some need. Anger's destroying their relationship with their spouse or their kids. Uh, they have an addiction that they hate but are powerless to control. Life feels empty and they long for fulfillment. There are a million different scenarios that bring people to, to, to church or to religion. Someone tells them about Jesus or, or about church. We have a great church. It's wonderful. Or they, they give them a track or a spiritual book and they think, and rightly so, they should give it a try. But too often what they try is some version of religious law. Maybe the Mosaic law with its 613 commands. More often it's the church's or denomination's rules. Do this, don't do that. But those rules, however good and helpful they may be, have no more power over sin than an x-ray has power over pneumonia. And when it doesn't work, and of course it isn't going to work, People either blame themselves, I guess I just, I'm not the religious type, or they blame the church, that bunch of hypocrites, and God is put on the shelf like last decade's cell phone. The way out of this mess of sin and the way into a life of purpose is not and never was the old way of the law. That's verse 6. Paul calls it the old way of the law. Rather, it's the new way of the Spirit. Boy, we're going to see a lot about that when we get to chapter 8. Taking the law, whether Mosaic law or church rules, to a life of purpose is like taking I-475 from Toledo to Detroit. You know, Detroit's like 60 miles north and a little bit east of Toledo. But you can drive 475 all day long, day after day. You can drive a million miles on 475, and you'll never get to Detroit. You'll just go in a circle around Toledo. To get to Detroit, you need to take a different way. Likewise, taking the law will never get you out of sin and into a life of purpose because it doesn't go that direction. The people who try religion for a time and then give up on it, and there are millions of them, are usually people who on some level have come to realize this. This isn't helping me. This isn't getting me where I want to go. What they don't realize is that no one ever got to the life of purpose and fulfillment that way. So let me apply this. You've been trying to get yourself straightened out by employing religious rules, whether ancient or modern, to your life, ask yourself this simple question. Is it working? Are you freer of sin than you were before? Is your life richer with purpose? 
Do you have power over temptation that you never had before? Are you less angry, more loving, more content? Or are you and the people around you even more aware of sin's power over you? Of anger, of lust, of greed, of laziness, or whatever it might be. The way forward is not the old way of the law. It's not the way of, I've got to try harder. Not to covet. Not to get angry. It's not even, oh, I need to go get baptized. It's not the old way of the law, but the new way of the spirit that is open only to people who trust in Jesus and become his student apprentices. The biblical word is disciples. See, your, dis- your decision... It's not how to get to that life, but who to follow there. One last illustration. Take a vacation to, you, you take a vacation to Mackinac Island with your family. And you have to, you can't leave until after work, so you leave after work. You catch the last ferry over at 10 p.m. You spend five nights on the island, have a great time. You get back to your car in the parking lot in Mackinac City, 8 o'clock Saturday morning. It was dark when you arrived in Mackinac City, but now the bright morning sun reveals a windshield that's just covered with bugs and dirt. You wonder how you could even see to drive on your way up. They were there, but you couldn't see them in the dark. The law is like the light that shows you the dirt and the bugs in your life. Once you see them, you might even be tempted to go back into the darkness so you can forget about them. But one thing is certain. The light won't make the dirt and bugs go away. For that, you need something else. For that, you need the spirit of Jesus. All right, let's pray. And we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, Lord, you have done the work for us on the cross. You have set us free from the power of sin and death. Now, Lord, do the work in us by your Spirit. Work out what you've already worked for us. And grant us grace to cooperate with you in that work. For Jesus' sake, amen.